oh, your, your zoning, your general plan are inconsistent. And the city said, no, 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 look at footnote nine. It says here that all of our zoning and our general plan are consistent with each other. And so this is consistent, even though anyone using their own brain would see that they were not consistent. And so that was one of the, the conclusions the judge came to in our case was that the city does not get to just decide. Why don't we get started? My name is Jillian from Yimby Action, and I welcome all. Thanks so much for joining. We'll do a little spiel about the Los Angeles lawsuit and what it means and why it's so exciting and how you can use it. I will kick it over shortly to Sonia Trous, who is our executive director of Yimby Law, and Ryan Patterson, who is our legal counsel at Zach Friedman Patterson. And together they identified this case and moved on it and made an argument that excitingly the judge accepted, which has some big implications for housing. But let's kick it over to Sonia. Hi, everyone. So I'm the executive director of Yes in My Backyard, also known as Yimby Law. And we sue cities all over California that are illegally denying projects. We have a lawsuit against Culver City uh, for an illegal downzoning. So other state laws as well. Um, so this lawsuit in Los Angeles was pretty exciting and interesting. A ambitious developer bought a single family house in a place that was zoned for single family, but because the general plan allowed an apartment building, he felt that he should be allowed to build a apartment building because he read the Housing Accountability Act. And in particular, he read paragraph J4, uh, which says that the city has to allow housing at the density that is allowed in the general plan and proposed by the developer. So he got in touch with us and uh, it's a real pleasure, you know, to meet people who are not dissuaded by planning staff. You know, he said, I can read English. It is not my first language, but I can read it. I see clearly what the law says. I know what I'm allowed to do. And, you know, it doesn't matter to me. Like LA is telling me I'm wrong, but he thought he was right. And we thought he was right too. So, you know, I'll let Ryan fill in the details, but fast forward about a year, we got the result that we wanted from the judge. So this is very exciting because there's a few, obviously, you know, in many cases, there's always more than one argument. There's more than one issue. And we pretty much won on every single issue. And there were some things that the judge agreed with us on that are like growing consensus you know, not so revolutionary. There were interpretations that many cities had been following, although not all cities had been following. Um, but there is one thing in particular that is totally new. And that is that whether or not the general plan and the zoning are consistent, you still get the density allowed in your general plan. A lot of cities have been interpreting the law to say that the general plan and the zoning have to be inconsistent in order for the developer to get the density allowed in the general plan. But here, the judge agreed with us that even when they are consistent, you still get the density in the general plan. So that's a huge effective upzoning if this holds at the appeals court, because so many cities have, you know, higher densities in their general plan than in their zoning. So that's why we're so excited about this. Yeah, so some people may already have used this paragraph. You know, you may already have had a project where 
you know, the zoning was inconsistent with the general plan and, you know, you got the general plan. Other people may have been told by a city, like, in order to do your project, you have to get a zone change, but you don't need a general plan amendment. So definitely if you're in that situation where a city is telling you don't need a general plan amendment, but you do need a zone change in order to get the density you want, let us know because we don't think you have to do that anymore. All right. So Ryan, go for it. All right. Thank you, Sonia. And thank you all for taking time to join us today. This is a great, fun catch up on a, a really important victory. And as Sonia said, my name is Ryan Patterson. I'm a partner at Zach's Friedman and Patterson, and it's my great pleasure and honor to represent UMB Law in a number of lawsuits, including this one. So I want to give a little detail about what this lawsuit was, what the victory was, what it means going forward, and we can get into the details and nuances a bit. So as Sonia said, this was an ambitious project, over 60 units on a lot zoned for single family use. And the nuance there is the zoning is for single family. The zoning in Los Angeles is called RA, which is actually suburban agriculture. And it allows for agriculture or one family home on one lot. The general plan land use designation, however, which is the overarching plan for the city, you know, we're talking about the big maps with the big land areas carved up into broader categories of uses. The general plan designation here was commercial, not for residential, not for single family, not for rural agriculture. It's commercial. And that allowed for specific commercial zones for commercial uses and high density residential. So large apartment buildings. So we saw a conflict here between what the city was trying to restrict this land to be versus what it could and should be. The developer was stuck. He had been fighting against the city, but he was, you know, one small developer and had run into that wall where the city said, you can go no further unless you bend to our will. So we got involved, we filed suit, and our lawsuit involved a number of different state uh, land use laws, including SB 330, the Housing Crisis Act, the Permit Streamlining Act, and the Housing Accountability Act. Uh, we've done a quite a bit of litigation in these areas uh, successfully in the past and brought that knowledge, that learning from previous experience to bear here and won. So the general setup here is under these state laws, an applicant can but does not have to submit what's called a preliminary application under SB 330, Housing Crisis Act. That law requires a certain set of information to be included in the preliminary application. And if you file the required list of items, then your application is automatically deemed complete and it operates to freeze the development standards as of the date that your preliminary application was complete. So the developer did that in this case. Then next, the developer submits the actual development application. And the city has 30 days to determine whether that application is complete. Uh, there is a list of items. If the city thinks that it's incomplete, the city has to tell you what is wrong with it, what's incomplete. And then the developer can either resubmit with those missing items, or uh, if the city does not give that list of in incomplete items, then by operation of law, the application is deemed complete. And that's the end of discussion. If there are 
things missing, then the developer works on those and chips away at those until that list diminishes to zero. The city can't come back and add additional items later. And then once the application is complete, depending on the size of the project, the city has either 30 or 60 days to determine whether the application is code compliant. And this is under the Housing Accountability Act. The city has to give the applicant a list of non-compliant items, or if it doesn't do so within that time frame, then the project is deemed code compliant, which is a very powerful thing and worth paying close attention to if you're a developer uh, working with city agencies. And you know we often want to be cooperative with planners, but at some point, you don't want to let a deadline like that go by. Stand on your rights, and as this developer did, can be very powerful. So what happened in the lawsuit? Um, in Los Angeles and cities generally in California and across the country, cities require compliance with zoning. If you file an application that looks like it doesn't comply with the zoning, they often tell you, we can't approve this project. We'll get back to that later because that's one of the major impacts here. But before you even get to that point, LA has this strange and frustrating practice of not even allowing for an application to be submitted until you go around to sub-departments and get pre-clearance from those departments, agreeing that what you're about to submit is compliant and approvable. So you essentially have to go through an entire approval process before even submitting the application. The judge said no to that. That turns the entire state land use process on its head, where you, you file an application, the city has a set amount of time to determine if the application is complete, and then only once it's complete, the city has a set amount of time to determine whether the application is code compliant. You don't have to go determine behind closed doors with city agencies ahead of time that your application is code compliant. Yeah, I want to emphasize here, sorry. I mean, it really was ridiculous. Like you might, in a functional planning department, you would submit your application and then the planners would take that application around to their internal departments. Because there are, there's the streets, you know, they might have something to say. And, you know, there's like the, the people that are kind of regulating the density bonus process. You know, there's sort of different organs. But yeah, LA is forcing applicants to like do the planner's job, you know, to go around to all of these sort of departments within the planning department on their own first. And yeah, this, it was a very frustrating process because this developer couldn't even get turned down. You know, like our first fight, sorry to <laughs> jump ahead a little bit, but our first fight was to even get this thing disapproved because they basically were kept telling him his project application wasn't complete because it needed a rezoning. Anyway, go on. Yeah, those are great points. Eventually, the applicant was able to force its way into an appeal and get the appeal denied, and then it was ripe for a lawsuit. Uh, so the, the judge said, you can't do that. You don't go around getting pre-clearance before going through the state housing law processes. So that was a major victory for Los Angeles and for other cities that are paying attention. The second major takeaway here has to do with the question of code compliance and really zoning compliance. So as Sonia mentioned, the Housing Accountability Act contains this subsection J4, and I want to read it, and your eyes may glaze over listening to this, but this is the crux of, of really unlocking a lot of potential for housing. The HAA Section J4 says, 
for purposes of this section, a proposed housing development project is not inconsistent with the applicable zoning standards and criteria and shall not require a rezoning if the housing development project is consistent with the objective general plan standards and criteria, but the zoning for the project site is inconsistent with the general plan. If the local agency has complied with paragraph two, the local agency may require the proposed housing development project to comply with the objective standards and criteria of the zoning, which is consistent with the general plan. However, the standards and criteria shall be applied to facilitate and accommodate development at the density allowed on the site by the general plan and proposed by the proposed housing development project. So it's a, it's a long, intricate paragraph, but here's what it means. Um, we argue that this is two sentences and each sentence has its own meaning. First sentence says that where the zoning is inconsistent with the general plan designation, so for example, general plan says it's commercial and the zoning says it's agricultural. If it's inconsistent, then you ignore the zoning and you look only to the general plan for the maximum residential density. So if the zoning says this is for single family, but the general plan designation allows for 50 units, then you're allowed to do 50 units. So that is a very powerful tool right there. The second sentence, we argue, means this. If the zoning is consistent with the general plan designation, you still look to the general plan to tell you how many residential units are allowed. And you only apply the local zoning standards to the extent that they facilitate the density allowed by the general plan. So again, an extremely powerful tool. That would be things like front setbacks. If the zoning says you need a five-foot front setback or a 10-foot front setback, you can do that as long as it doesn't prevent you from building the number of dwelling units allowed by the general plan. Effectively, this nullifies zoning in some ways. It nullifies the restrictions of zoning on residential density, and you only look to the general plan, which is generally more permissive. The city, on the other hand, argued that that's, of course, not what the law means. It, it really just means that the city gets to determine that its own code is compliant, uh, internally consistent between zoning and general plan. And if it's consistent, then you take the zoning density, you take the residential density from the zoning, and you apply the zoning. So very different meaning, much more restrictive and deferential to the city. and that's a bad thing because the city has for many years applied the zoning and the general plan in a way that is very restrictive and prevents housing creation. And in fact, has kept a lot of land zoned RA, this suburban agricultural zoning, apparently for the purpose of being a placeholder. If you want to build a project of any significant size, you have to apply for a rezoning. And a rezoning in Los Angeles and really most other places, if not everywhere, that rezoning is discretionary. You go to your local council member with your uh, <laughs> hat in hand and ask for permission to rezone the property. So that puts it into a political discretionary realm where most developers don't want to be. It's much harder, it's uncertain, and it's prone to cronyism and favoritism, and frankly, corruption. So state law, as we argue, undoes that does not allow LA to apply the law that way. 
And the judge agreed, which is pretty extraordinary. The judge in this case found first that the property zoning is clearly inconsistent with the general plan designation. Uh, the rural suburban agriculture versus commercial general plan. He said that's clearly inconsistent. But even if it were not inconsistent, even if they were consistent, he adopted our view of section J4, which is you still ignore the zoning density and look to the general plan. Uh, so that's a pretty amazing outcome. And it gels with, I think, a growing consensus in the pro-housing community that this is what the law means. But now we have a judge agreeing and agreeing in what was a 42-page single-space ruling, which is truly extraordinary for a trial court decision. That's more like an appellate decision or a Supreme Court decision. And it's, it's depth and scope of review of kind of a general survey of state housing laws. So what happens next? We have a very unhappy city attorney. They don't like losing. And so they filed a motion for reconsideration or rehearing, a motion for a new trial. We are, of course, opposing that. We think that our victory is proper and should stand. And there's a hearing scheduled for September 29th. I am very hopeful and optimistic that we will prevail there. And then the city is going to have a decision to make. Does it appeal? Or does the city just allow this case to quietly die and not go up to the court of appeal and become higher profile and binding precedent statewide? I think the city will probably appeal. I think this is too big of a problem for them to just take the loss it quietly. We argued that a, a previous fairly old case called Warner Ridge was actually binding on the city, even though it was just a trial court decision. And the court agreed with us. And that case dealt with some of the same issues in a favorable way and pointed out that the city has for many years ignored its state housing law obligations. So the city saw in our case what can happen when a trial court decision goes unchecked. They lose and then it's not appealed. They ultimately had settled that one in a, a strange history. But if they allow this case to go along and not go unchecked and not appealed, you know, I think they see the power of that. Even though it's only a trial court decision and not up on appeal, it's going to cause problems for them and potentially for other cities. Uh, as other cities pay close attention to Yimby's litigation and the outcomes, and it tends to set the tone and give cities pause when they're looking for ways around the state housing law. So I think even if this stays at the trial court level, it will be very impactful, but I think it's likely to go up higher to appeal, and then we have to defend our victory. Uh, and I, I look forward to that. I think we will win. And in the meantime, there's another case working its way through the Court of Appeal. It's the Snowball West Investments v. City of Los Angeles case. This one is unfortunately a few months ahead of us, and the developer represented itself, uh, had counsel representing just the developer, it's not a YIMBY case, and they lost in the trial court on similar issues. So the Court of Appeal is hearing this. We have filed an amicus brief to try to support the developer and overturn the city's victory. And hopefully the Court of Appeal will agree with the logic of our decision in this case. And of course, we've notified the court of our uh, victory in this case also. And the fact that there's a well thought out long ruling by this judge that hopefully the justices will review. 
So we don't know when exactly a decision will come out on that one. We're still waiting for a, a hearing date from the Court of Appeal. So that may be another, you know, several months, six months, could be a while before we see an answer there. So fingers crossed. In the meantime, I think that this is going to be very helpful to developers in Los Angeles and statewide to be able to lean on the Housing Accountability Act, 330 Permit Streamlining Act. This is going to be a powerful tool. And I'll turn it over to you, Sonia, and you can discuss how folks in the development community can use this victory and what happens next. A lot of times when uh, something's appealed, I mean, rumor has it, you know, the, well, and I think the stats bear this out. Appeals courts are usually looking to support what the superior court said. You know, that's their kind of default. Probably the superior court's right. But now in the same city, having two completely really opposite decisions means the appeals court has to actually think about it. So this is we're in a much better position, like even just there, we're much better off, you know, if anybody was following the snowball case and you were worried that that might be bad precedent, I think we can all be less worried because now we have a, a, you know, a good, a good decision. So yes, I think this is question time. So we have, can you elaborate on the city's argument? Yeah, they were relying on a one-liner in the community plan. This was something that Ryan kind of skipped over a little bit. So yes, like they're, one of the questions is, so here we are, we have some zoning and we have a general plan. And one question is, who gets to decide whether it's consistent or not? The cities and LA had been saying, it's up to the city to decide whether it's consistent or not. We are the ones who judge. And frankly, judges had gone with that in the past. And LA in particular did a hilarious thing where they put a footnote in their general plan that said, also, by the way, all the zoning is consistent with the general plan. They just said that. And so they would point to that, you know, so that's what happened in Snowball. The Snowball said, oh, your, your zoning, your general plan are inconsistent. And the city said, no, 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 look at footnote nine. It says here that all of our zoning and our general plan are consistent with each other. And so this is consistent, even though anyone using their own brain would see that they were not consistent. And so that was one of the, the conclusions the judge came to in our case was that the city does not get to just decide, you know, that there's a different standard. So Ryan, can you talk about that other standard? Sure. So footnote nine uh, creates this nesting dolls situation where the city says, um, as kind of described in a footnote to their zoning, to their community plans, every more intense category of, of zoning allows for every less intense category of zoning. So it can never be inconsistent because if, if, one thing is allowed, if, if the zoning or the general plan allows for something intense like high density residential, but the zoning only allows for low density residential, well, that's not inconsistent because every less intensive use is contained within every more intensive use. And that argument did not fly. And it's not the first time that it hasn't flown. So the city kind of takes issue with that substantively saying, well, our footnote is correct and therefore our argument is correct. But they also argue essentially that the judge has to defer to the city's interpretation of its own code, which for most of the history of zoning has been the case. Courts have been reluctant to intervene and substitute their own judgment 
for the judgment of city planning commissions and city councils. The Housing Accountability Act was amended in just recent years uh, to essentially take away that discretion um, and imposes a reasonable person test. If a reasonable person can determine that the application is consistent or compliant with the objective standards, then it is consistent. It is code compliant. That's very different from saying the city gets to decide if it's consistent or not with the code. This is really, if anybody could look at it and say, uh, yeah, it, it could be consistent, then the judge has to impose that instead of the city's own judgment. And the court did that here. That's a pretty dramatic change. And looking at the city's motion for reconsideration, they're clearly unhappy with that. You know, it's it's taking away their their favorite toy, saying that the city gets to always be right. And that's no longer the case. Okay, so how much can a developer rely on this case to force other jurisdictions to allow density per the general plan? Does it have any weight? I'm going to give an answer. And then also, I think there are people here in this call who can also answer this. This is an important question. One of the jobs of a city attorney is to tell their client what the law is. And another part of the job is to tell the client how much risk they're taking. And uh, for a long time before EMB law existed, or, you know, for some laws, you know, the city attorney might say, yeah, what you're doing is illegal. But to tell you the truth, the chance you're going to get sued is zero, right? Like if we're not there writing a letter or if they've never seen an interpretation, you know, that matches the, what the developer believes the interpretation is, you know, the idea is like, you probably won't get sued. Or if you get sued, like you probably are going to win. So this is evidence to the contrary. This makes it harder for the city attorney to say, it's very unlikely, you know, that a superior court judge, you know, is going to have this interpretation because you can show them that there was, in fact, a superior court judge that had this interpretation. Even in our case, you know, the judge, when we were talking about Warner Ridge, the judge said, oh, I, you know, Warner Ridge isn't controlling here, but I find the arguments persuasive. I mean, a judge is a persuasive person to another judge. So it's definitely a thumb on the scale. And then in general, too, I'm now I'm just making a pitch generally about like why it's good to have us write a letter for your project, because in that case, you know, the city attorney, like a lot of city attorneys, they don't believe that um, developers will sue. But the city attorney can look at the letter from, you know, Yimby Law and be like, well, like this. These people have a website. They do sue cities. Like, I can't say there's a zero chance that they'll sue you. Like, it just, you know, it changes the dynamic. It changes the chances. Well, Sonia, I'll, I'll add that in yeah. other cities where we've supported developers who've come under fire from city councils and have appeals, and we hand over a copy of a trial court ruling, that can be an educational tool for a city council member. And that's been effective in the past. A lot of local governments are still in the mode of state housing law doesn't do much and we have a lot of discretion and they need to see something concrete that disabuses them of that misunderstanding. And a ruling like this, which is, you know, lengthy and detailed, it can go a long way toward changing their minds and educating them. So concretely... So for developers who are, you know, pursuing sites, pursuing opportunities, there is this like 
you should be looking at the general plan land use designation, you know, in addition, maybe, you know, maybe more so than the zoning in this case, because you can go with that. And similarly, if you are in the midst of like waiting for a zoning change, you know, stop right there. You know, you can, you can say, okay, we don't actually need a zoning change if the general plan is aligned. Is that, is that kind of concrete? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like if they are telling you to get a zone change, but you do not need a general plan change. I mean, obviously your project is compliant with the general plan in that case. So yeah, you shouldn't need to get a, a zone change. I mean, some obviously developers, sometimes people apply for it anyway, but it's something to keep in your back pocket and to like keep whispering in the planner's ears. Another aspect of this though, is that the law, some people may feel that the law is like a real external thing. You know, we talk about laws of nature, but laws of humans are very much a social project. Uh, so this is why we're, I mentioned earlier, like the notion of growing consensus. And that's another way that this kind of thing is important is that it supports a certain worldview. And there's more than one way to support a worldview, right? Like you can get a superior court judge and even better an appeals court judge to agree with you, but also authoritatively <laughs> putting forward that a uh, interpretation is correct is everyone's small way of supporting a worldview. So that's part of what, you know, some people call it narrative change. Like that is, this is part of narrative change. And so that's another important thing that like, when you're chatting with people, activists, planners, other developers, attorneys, you know, making sure that people know that this exists and that this interpretation is part of the growing consensus, you know, creates like the reality that we want. We have another question. All right. In cases where the general plan allows multifamily, but do not contain a density, is the default density then in the zoning code? Great question, Sandhill. Sandhill, you know the answer to this, I think, almost better than anyone. I think this, I guess it probably depends and the city would say yes, but I do not think so. I, <laughs> when, if the, if the density is, if there's no mention of density, we think that the density, any density is allowed. And didn't you have this controversy with Cupertino where there was no height limit mentioned in the general plan? And so you were able to have no height limit for your project? That's correct. But we're hitting the issue again in an adjacent city and they're they're digging in their heels. Yeah, so no. I mean, at the other, like, if you think about it, zoning is a restriction. In this paragraph, there's this very funny phrase where the city is allowed to apply the zoning insofar as it supports the density which is a very weird thing to say about zoning, right? Because zoning doesn't support anything, it limits. Like our default in the state of nature is that you can do anything you want with your property, right? And the zoning comes along and says, well, no, you can't use all of your, your lot coverage. You know, well, no, you have to uh, build a little bit away from the lot line, whatever, right? These are all limits. So if there's no limit, like the default assumption is that you can, you know, that there's no limit, it's not addressed. So that's, yeah, I... Well, I'd love to talk to you offline. I'm sorry to hear that another city is fighting with you about this. All right, I have another one. Since this victory is at trial court, have you seen HCD respond in any way that's consistent with this opinion? 
via technical assistance? Yeah, great question. So HCD has been pretty cool. They responded, you know, there was a project in Millbrae where there was sort of a similar conflict and they definitely responded on the side of housing. On the other hand, they're like, they have this HCD guidance document that is crummy very crummy, has many things in it that are not helpful at all. And their guidance on this paragraph is, I think, not helpful. Definitely I've been emailing them. You better believe at every turn, you know, I'm like, I want you to know what's happening. But if you have ideas or if anybody does about lobbying them, um, definitely get in touch with me because I really would like for them to change their crummy recommendation in their HAA guidance. But they've been, when we talked to them, we did have a call with them where we discussed the interpretation and I told them our, you know, most pro-housing interpretation and they said they agreed with it. So it's a a bit mixed from them. So Sonia, to wrap us up, if, if people want this work to continue, if they want to make sure that we win the appeal and that we're able to keep fighting, what should they do? Oh, donate, donate, donate. Those are the three things. <laughs> and, you know, get involved, sign up. We have our watchdogs. We have our regular Yimby membership. You can go to yimbyaction.org slash join or yimbylaw.org slash donate. Awesome. Thanks all. Jillian, if I may, I'll add that once LA almost inevitably appeals this, it is going to be a big fight to defend this win. They're going to come out hard against it. And I expect a number of other cities may join in and support LA because they don't want to lose their discretionary authority either. So it's it's critically important that we are able to defend this victory. And thank you for your support so far. I should also add, you should not take the statements on this call as legal advice. If you are running into a problem with your project, you should consult with your own qualified attorney. That's generally a good thing to do in any case as you go into it. And I also, I wanted to take a second to commend the developer in this case, Mr. and Mrs. Cha. They were courageous. And despite the entire city of LA being against them, they won. And as a developer, I think it's uh, it sometimes can be really daunting when the government is after you and doesn't want you to use your land as you have a right to do. Sometimes you don't want to be antagonistic toward the government, but that's also where Yimby can come in and assert your rights in a way that allows you to continue being the good cop as Yimby is, you know, the the force for good asserting your rights. The other good cop. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, thanks again, everybody. Thanks all so much. Hey, everyone. Ken up here, one of the Infill producers. If you're not already a member, go to yimbyaction.org and become a member today. Yimby Action is advocating for the policy solutions we need for abundant, affordable housing and inclusive, sustainable communities across the country. If you believe this work is important and valuable, I really want to urge you to become a supporting member. You can do that, as I said, by going to yimbyaction.org slash join. Thanks so much.